Well, good morning, Oak Grove. It's an honor and a privilege to get to open the Word of God with you today. I just want to stop and say how much I love and appreciate you guys. Um, you know, believe it or not, me and Brandon, like, plan out service. And um, we were listing all the people we needed to uh, thank for, for the things going on. And, man, you guys have, over the last couple of weeks, you've been busy whether it's planning a Thanksgiving or a living nativity or planning mission trips or uh, working on the budget or whatever. There, there's so many people that deserve appreciation right now because y'all, y'all are working like crazy. Like the, the boxes, that didn't just happen. The, the, the Reynolds gave a lot of time and effort and energy and preparation for the, the kids to come along and, and to pack them. And then all the people that had to be there to help to make sure like, Nobody got in the road, and there, there's just so many things going on right now, and, and you guys are busy, and you're working, and I'm, I'm just, I'm so appreciative of, of who you are and what you're doing, but um, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this time, and then we'll, we'll jump right into it. Lord, we, uh, we're so grateful that we get to peer into eternity and see the heart of the King as you unfold your will for us on paper. Lord, I pray that it wouldn't just be unfolded on paper, but your spirit would unfold it on our hearts. And it would take root deep, deep down. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. God, and I, I pray for our brothers and sisters that are traveling, and I know a lot of us are going to travel this week. Lord, I pray that every one of us as we go and come, would make it home safe. Lord, and we, I just pray that blessing of protection as we travel. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're still in living for what lasts. I don't know if you ever noticed that, but that's actually the picture of the Brazos and one of the bridges over there. So uh, my lovely wife made that. Um, but, you know, all this stuff is going to fade away. And the only thing that will last is the kingdom of God. So we want to live for that, right? And this morning, what we're going to see is a call to personal holiness as we live and walk with God. If you've been a believer for a while, if you've walked with the Lord for a while, you're going to know this. But where is most of the battle in your Christianity fought? Is it fought in the market is it fought online? No. It's right between your ears. Most of the, the battles that you will face in your Christian life, it, they're fought in the mind. And the world, the world wants you, even if you're in Christ, it wants you to be dormant in Christ. The world wants you. It wants you without God. The world wants you to be happy just happiness apart from God. The world uh, wants you to be loved. The world wants you to be accepted. The world wants you to have friends. The world wants you to fit in. Just fit in without God. The world wants you to be content. Contentment apart from God. Satan, the things of this world, they want you to be religious. 
The world's okay with any weird religion. It won't speak out against all sorts of craziness and witchcraft and, and worshiping poles and like just, there's just nonsense. But if you believe in, in salvation by faith alone through Christ alone, if you believe in a God who created all things, the world looks at you like you're crazy. The world wants you religious, just religious without God. A life with God will put you at odds with the things of the world. The, a life walked with God, the text tells us, will bring suffering, it will bring conflict. Maybe for you, it's just mental suffering, staying up at night wondering why your family won't accept you because you now believe in Jesus. Maybe it's a suffering for a loss of a job because you've made, that, made it known that you're a believer. Maybe it's a future physical or political suffering for your faith. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.12, do not be surprised when fiery trials come upon you. In Christ, the expectation is suffering and trials. A lot, much of the New Testament is devoted for preparing believers for such things. It would be ignorant then for suffering and trials to come on us and then us be like, hey, God must not be here. There's bad things in the world, so obviously God doesn't exist. No, the book is telling you the world is fallen, and to be with God is going to bring conflict and suffering on you. It should not take us by surprise. We need to be prepared, and we need to be prepared for the coming conflict with the world so that we can be victorious. So, Let's look at uh, what's true, kind of our thesis for the day, what, drawn from the text. Living for the kingdom of God puts you at odds with the kingdom of the world. It's simple. So what do we do with this? It sounds simple, but it's hard. We are to be prepared by being armed with the mindset of Jesus. So let's, let's look at verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For, that, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. May the Lord add blessing to the reading of His Word. So let's look at verse 1 together. 
And what we're going to look at is a, the mind of Christ. So in Christ, we're not called to be beaten up. In Christ, we're not called to be beaten down. In Christ, as Romans tells us, we are called more than conquerors. We're not just conquerors, whatever that means. We're more than conquerors in Christ. No power can remove our victory. There's nothing in this world and there's nothing in the world that, to come that can separate us from the love of God. Romans 8, 37, one of my favorite passages in all the scripture says this. In all these things, we are more than conqueror, conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things um, present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are made to live victorious in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's this new life that we've been given. So how, how exactly do we live in this victory? Verse 1 tells us, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. Our victory comes because Christ suffered in the flesh. Because Christ suffered in the flesh, we can have victory over the flesh. Now for us, what we have to do is, is fight the daily battles that we find in our flesh. Because in Christ, we're still going to struggle with sin. And we have to arm ourselves with this same way of thinking that our text tells us. What is this, this way of thinking that would make us be overcomers? This is the idea that Christ, again, has suffered in the flesh. Peter's using this word flesh to draw our minds back. He, he, he's consistently making a play on words here with the flesh all throughout the book. And he's, he's drawing our mind back to 1 Peter 3.18. That was the last time he talked about the flesh. And remember, context is the key to under, understanding the Bible. It's the key to unlocking what the text has to say. So 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why did he do this? That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. He did it so that we would walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. He did it so that we would be able to be with God, the Father. Jesus suffered in, for once for all sins for us to be brought to the Lord. He suffered once for all sins so that we would be transformed. And we need to arm ourselves with this way of thinking, a mindset that understands that we are blood-bought, born again, sons and daughters of God Almighty, who, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he sends his Holy Spirit to indwell us that we would be transformed. We're no longer walking in the death of this world, but we are walking in the newness of Jesus Christ. He's given us the Holy Spirit to, to help us walk in holiness. The, his, uh, the words paraclete, that he would be our helper. That we would have victory daily. We are to, have, to live lives that have the stamp and the stain of God on every part of our life, in our thoughts, in our hearts, 
to be worked out in our actions. There's nothing in creation that God does not look at and say, mine. There's nothing in your life. There's, no, there's nothing you get to edge out for yourself once you come to Jesus. Once you come to Jesus, you are his. There's nothing you get to carve out for yourself. There's no little bit of sin you get to hide and keep locked away. He looks at the entirety of your life, your thought life, your work life, your, your, your fun time. He looks at it and he says, it's mine. And every bit of it should be affected by the Holy Spirit living this transformed life through us. We need to have this, this way of thinking. We need to have the same mind that we have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. The call here is that we would prepare our minds for suffering. We are told to arm ourselves with this mindset. Another way this word can be translated is to equip. Equipping, arming oneself, that's, that's, a, that's an active thing, right? I know we've got some guys here that are ex-military and cops. Would you ever think about going on patrol going out on duty downrange without actively arming yourself. For those who are sitting in the front, you can't see all the heads shaking, no. You would be a lamb into the slaughter, wouldn't you? Why do we fail so often, church? Why do I fail so often? Because we're not doing the work of arming ourselves daily. So how do we actively arm ourselves? It starts in the quiet. Daily being with God. The world wants you without God. God wants you with him. And it starts daily. Daily working on memorizing scripture that you might hide it in your heart. What's the psalmist say? Hide the word um, deep in your heart so that you might not sin against God. We want the word to take root. We need to daily be in the word. We need to daily be confessing our sin and our need for God. We need to daily be in prayer. We need to be living in a way where we make a practice of praying through our day. Have you ever thought about praying for the mundane things in your life? God said he cares about the sparrow and the petals on the flower, how much more does he care about the mundane things in your life? But why would it be important to pray about these, these little things that might be, feel silly to us or might feel like God wouldn't care? Because when you live that way, you're putting God at the front of your mind. So that when these different situations come, You've already been thinking about God all day and honoring God. The, many of the historic church, when thinking about arming oneself, they would use the term by the ordinary means of grace. These things are weekly worship, weekly meeting with a group of people to study and to talk about the word. These are his ordinary means of grace that he's given us to equip ourselves with. There's a battle for holiness 
in every minute of your life. And you need to be living with God. You need to be living in the community of God or you are going to be exposed to the enemy. You will be exposed to the enemy. And I took this aside in the last service, so I'll do it here as well. When we live this way, when we're walking in a way where we're exposed, you're exposing your families as well. You're exposing your children. I'm not the guy that says you got to be in church every week because you need to go, you got weekends, you need to go see your family. You need to go spend time and bond and do some things and, and hunt. And I'm, I'm, I'm not that guy. But God has given us a rhythm of worship to be done daily and weekly. And many people in our culture, they live in such a way that baseball and select basketball and select soccer are king. They've removed their children from the weekly rhythms of worship and the weekly arming that God has given you. And you're leaving your children exposed and you look up and you wonder why they've been consumed by the world. Get them in church. Get them in community. Fend off the wolves. These fleeting moments that we decide between sin and, and suffering, like our text is talking about, will have been decided, I believe, before you ever get in that moment. It's the preparation beforehand. It's the way that you arm yourself. Think about football or any sport. A bad, of, a bad week of practice often leads to a loss, right? How you prepare often dictates how you will perform. You must prepare well spiritually so that when that time comes because of your diligence and discipline and the work of the Spirit through you, you would find victory over that temptation. You would, you would find a, a stiff neck to be able to stand for suffering. There these things are decided in, in the small places. Our spirituality, in our spirituality, you just can't take shortcuts. You're cheating yourself. You're cheating your family. You're cheating your church. And you're cheating your God when you do. I mean, I'm just using sports as an example because we love sports. Like I love, my dad and my brother are both coaches. And I, we can watch practice and we can see someone um, halfway giving effort in a drill. Not making scout team important. When you see that, what do you say? You're cheating your teammates. We can so easily look at something as non-weighty as that and, and point our finger and make that declaration, but on the heavy matters of spirituality, we're, we're more than happy to cut corners. You must decide. 
You must prepare well daily to walk in holiness, or when it comes, you will set yourself up for failure. You must decide to pursue your holiness over your happiness. You need to decide to pursue obedience over comfort. And you need to arm yourself with a mindset that says, I've been saved by grace. I'm going to be presented to the Father. Jesus is going to deliver me and bring me to the Father. I understand my performance isn't what's getting me there, but how I live does honor God. How I live preaches to the world around me what I believe. And when our walk does not match our talk, then we're functional atheists. The way we live matters. Let's move on to this next main word here. And it really tripped me up this week. I, I did a lot of work, a lot of prayer, a lot of thinking. This word here, ceasing. What in the world does it mean that we cease to sin from suffering? I, I, there are some who believe there are traditions, many Pentecostals, charismatic tradition, Methodist traditions, they do believe you can be perfect on this side of eternity. Um, it's called Christian perfectionism. Um, I don't think that that's what this is teaching because God won't contradict himself and God has taught other things in the New Testament. Other passages talk about what believers need to do when they do sin. And Paul, for example, he's writing from the book of Romans and he says, the thing I want to do, the, the, talking about walking in righteousness, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. He's talking about he, he still sins. And the idea that somehow one day I will, like on this side of eternity, be more holy in my, and, and obedient than Paul the apostle, just don't think so. Also, think about Peter, Peter's story. So Peter... Uh, he preaches a sermon at Pentecost. Everything's great in the book of Acts. And then he gets thrown in jail. Peter gets beaten. Bad things happen to Peter. And then, like, so if you take this at face value, it, it would mean that Peter is no longer able to sin because he had already suffered. But then you fast forward, put the fast forward button and go to Galatians. Paul is writing a book in which he explains the sin of Peter where Peter, after Pentecost and all that, he get, takes up with a group of Judaizers trying to say that salvation plus something else. Peter repents and moves on. He writes this letter. But that would mean that Peter never sinned after that moment, that he uh, suffered for Jesus, and he did. So what is it talking about? I think he's more meaning that your willingness to suffer, and this is the guy who's already suffered, this is Peter, your willingness to suffer shows that you have broken from this previous life with sin. Your allegiance is no longer with the world. Your willingness to suffer shows that there is a real transformation that has happened inside of you. 
Look at verse two. This is a continuation of that thought, so we shouldn't like read it somehow separate. Like, oh, this. So he's talking to one who's possibly ceased from sinning. He says, live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer uh, for human passions. So that's the idea that you still could live for human passions, but instead live for God. So ceasing from sin here means living for God. Not that you will be sinless, even though, Lord, please let us be, but that you no longer live for sin. I think the same point's being made in Romans 6. Look at Romans 6.10 on the screen. It says, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive in God, in Jesus Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, but do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, that's the idea that you still could, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, which we have in Christ, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. We are to be an instrument for righteousness as a believer, not an instrument for unrighteousness. Verse 2 um, says it's no longer, we're no longer to be living for the flesh, but we're to be living for God. We're, who you live for shows what you live for shows you where your allegiance lies. So again, I'm going to say it. It doesn't matter what your mouth confesses. What message are you preaching with your life? And I'm not one that's trying to divorce verbally sharing the gospel, but both of those things have to come together. We must arm ourselves by having this mind among us set on the work of Jesus and how he suffered, died, and now he's reigning in heaven and he's reigning in our hearts and we're to live as if he's reigning in our hearts. So let's look at uh, verses two through three. We, we need to have a mindset on living for the kingdom. So as to live for the rest of this time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but the will of God for... The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living for sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. The command here is what we are to do with our time left. And with our time left, we are not to live for the flesh, but we are to live for God. Remembering that Jesus suffered in the flesh. We only have a little bit of time left that we are going to walk on this earth and we need to decide who we're going to live it for. You can choose to live it for yourself, you can choose to live it for the world, or you can choose to live it for God Almighty. And I love what verses 2 and 3, there's a theme of time here. Verse 2 looks, looks ahead to us with, with the time that we're going to spend on this side of the cross, on this side of the believing, um, living for God. But verse three talks about the time in our past and it acknowledges that we've done some stuff. Matter of fact, it lists some of the stuff we've done. It's, it, and it's saying that those things from behind should not be the things that dictate, they, they should not be the things that define the future you in Christ. 
So if you had an addiction in your past, that addiction's not to define you in your future. You've got sin in your past. That sin of who you were and the things that you've done are not to be the things that are to define you in Christ. And once, in, once you're in Christ, you need to stop participating in these sins. I love, again, verse 2 and 3. He's being pretty witty. My ESV translates accurately, but I like how the NIV translates it here because it, uh, it shows you something, and it's, 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 it's true to the language. It says, uh, it, where, it, it, where mine translates wants, in verse 3, it translates will. So what he's doing is he's showing two wills, the will of God that we would walk in for God in this time we have remaining. And it also shows us the will of the pagans, right? That we would, they want us to continue living in our sin. It wants us to, to live for this old kingdom. Look at, look at verses, uh, look at verse three right here. It, it, then, it then gives us a list of sins. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. And this is by no means an exhaustive list of sin, right? This is more or less what the world would invite you to do with them. The, the things that the world would consider a good time. And you need to understand, we need to understand that every action we do is worship. Walking in holiness is worship to God. Walking in sin is worship to something. Sin is choosing something above God. Sin is choosing something above God. So you've now made a God over God. Sin is worshiping sin. Sin is worshiping that action because you're saying, God, you're not as important as this. But I want you to know every sin has a, is a mask for something else. Every time you sin, you're choosing to worship Satan. The evil one stands behind every one of these decisions where you're choosing either him or you're choosing God. When people talk about the law, often they talk about how restrictive God's law is. The law of God is there so that you can understand how to walk closely with God and how to, how to live this blessed life. Tell me how it's restrictive to only worship God. Tell me how it's restrictive to not lie, but to, to, to live in a way that honors the truth. Tell me how it's restrictive to to honor your wife and love your wife and enjoy your wife instead of going and taking another man's wife. Tell me how it's restrictive to not take someone else's stuff, but instead to enjoy your stuff. Those things are not restrictive. Those things are for your enjoyment so that you would thoroughly enjoy and live and walk in a way that honors God. This, this word... Uh, you know, we, we talk about the Torah. If I asked you what the Torah meant, most people would say the law. That's kind of accurate um, because the law is contained in the Torah. It's the, the Torah is the first five books of the Bible, but Torah means something else. Torah means the way. 
or the direction. The purpose of the Torah is that you would walk in a way that aligns yourself close to God. The Torah is given to us so that we would walk closely with God, not so that it would restrict us, but so that we could walk in a way that, that we get to fully experience happiness and joy. The law is there for our, our protection. I'm going to assume most of us have dogs, like, because dogs are like, animals are like one of the most, uh, the, the biggest streams of commerce in, the, the, uh, in America right now, animal stuff. But if you have a dog, you got a fence, right? Now, that's, that's not necessarily a given in China Spring, but I'm just telling you now, if you have a dog, you ought to have a fence. And I got this new dog. He's like a teenager by now. Like he's all gangly and he's a sheepadoodle. So he's kind of gangly like a lab um, and he's awkward looking. He's a big dog, but he's not filled out yet. And if I were, his name's Willie. If I were to go ask Willie if he felt like the, the fence was restrictive, you know what Willie would tell me? Yes. <laughs> Every day he longingly looks out of the fence. Every day he barks at every dog that walks by. Willie believes he's a giant dog. Willie believes there's never been a dog that he couldn't whip. And of the dogs that have walked by our house, I've not seen one yet that he could whip. Willie feels like that fence is restrictive to his joy and to his happiness. But if that fence wasn't there, you know what he would find? the bumper of a truck that drives too fast down our road. He would find that each one of those dogs that he thinks he's bigger than, that he is in fact not. He would find that those coyotes we hear all night would just love to have a willy snack. <laughs> That's my daughter. She's digging the illustration on willy. But the the fence is for his joy and for his freedom. Yes, it is restricted, restricting him from something, but it's allowing him to live in a way where he's protected from, from the things that would want to hurt him. The fence of the law is truly for your freedom. God's desire is not to prohibit your happiness in any way. God's desire is to protect you from the things that come along that would lead you into addiction and pain. Like verse 3 says, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. The world would like you to believe that chasing sex, um, that chasing your passions, that partying all the time looks like freedom. All right, think about your friends or think about someone older than you that you know that has lived that life. Are they happy now? They're broken. They're alone. They're sad. They're miserable and they're miserable to be around. What the world is promising as freedom and happiness is true bondage. Addiction makes you believe that drinking, drinking that beer or looking at that, that pornography or taking that pill 
or sleeping with that person. Sin, sin our addiction, it, it tells us, it has a narrative, it, it says in our mind. It says something about, it, it'll, give me, it'll give me freedom. It'll allow me to be the person I was meant to be. Uh, and, and I'm going to finally experience the fullest sense of myself because I'm chasing this thing. At the beginning, it might feel that way. But talk to an al- alcoholic. Talk to someone who's addicted to opioids. Talk to someone who's lost their, their, their entire family because they've chased after every sexual desire that's come along. They're not happy people. They're broken people. They are enslaved people. They are daily living just to feed that addiction. One of the allures of sin is that it looks harmless. You believe you're in control. You think that that sin is manageable. The Bible says flee. Sin is a roaring lion seeking who it might devour. Satan is looking for a foothold. Sin is powerful. Sin is destructive. Sin will ruin your life. It will ruin your family. But yet we play with it so flippantly because at first it just feels kind of fun. We think we're in control, but the reality is you're not. Sin is the way of destruction. We in Christ have been set on the narrow road that is to lead us to eternal life. We need to leave that behind us and look ahead to to walking this path of holiness. So let's look at verses four and five now. And we're gonna see a mindset on the, the God of judgment. Verse four. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You need to decide who you're going to be more concerned about. Are you going to be more concerned about the judgment of God or the judgment of man? Are you going to be more concerned about the judgment of God or the judgment of your friends? When you don't participate in the sin of the community, the Bible is telling you here that your friends, your family, the people you work with, they're going to be upset because you've stopped. Sinners love the company and their sin. It says they're going to be surprised because you've been transformed, because you've been changed. You're no longer taking place in it. And God's telling you that they're going to be upset with you and that they're going to malign you. Maybe a better word for us to understand this is is slander you. We've talked about this a few times, but how were the, the people in the day of Peter maligned and slandered? You know, one of, the, one of the names they called him was incestuous. That it was deplorable to the Romans, so it was worthy of the Romans um, wanting to kill them and not do business with them and all these things. Why would they call him incestuous? Because the Bible tells us to love each other with a brotherly affection and we address one another as brother and sister. They maligned them, they lied, they slandered. Um, they, we were said to, to, be, to be atheists and anarchists because we would not participate in the Roman festivals and, and, the, and the emperor worship. Now, today we're not getting martyred like they are 
But we as Christians in the 21st century are very accustomed to slander. Here's something you're going to recognize. If you believe in the Bible, you're a fundamentalist. If you believe that God's design for marriage is what the text says between man and woman, and you don't believe in LGBTQ things, then you're full of hate. You're a hateful person. If you believe that God's design for the sexes, if you believe that God has a specific design for the sexes, you're a bigot. Um, if you believe in creation, you're ignorant and anti-science, even though that their theories of creation are anti-science because you can't prove them and test them. That's what makes science. If you believe in heaven and hell, you're basing your life on fairy tales. All slander. Brothers and sisters in Christ, how about we grow a spine and we not quiver and we stop backpedaling every time somebody calls us a name? Plant your feet firm on the word. They're going to call you names. He tells you here, they're going to malign you. You're called to get your mind right. In Christ, you will be slandered. You can constantly capitulate to the culture, or you can be a person of conviction that changes culture and changes the culture around you in this little corner of creation that God's given us here in China Spring, Texas. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ, it doesn't say might, it says will, will be persecuted. Don't expect them to treat you better than they treated Jesus. What does Jesus say about it? He's preparing his followers for this, and he says this in, in John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than this master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you too. That's not a might, that's a will. Set our mind on the God who is coming to judge. It says he's going to judge the living and the dead. It says he's going to judge these people. Be more worried about God's judgment than their judgment. But I want to tell you about one more judgment that's to come. It's the judgment of the Bama seat. So we, we, get, we, we get this, that there's two judgments, right? The first judgment, it says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Whether or not they believed in him on earth, because they're going to stand in awe of the great cosmic king, and they will have nothing else to say except for worshiping the Lord. But then we're going to be judged based on whether or not we had faith and trust in Jesus Christ or not. And he's going to separate those who are alive in the spirit from all those who are dead in their spirit, who don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. And they will be cast forever into outer darkness. But church, I want you to understand that there's another judgment coming for each one of us. And we will stand before what some call the Bema Seat of Christ. In the Greek games, you see two judgments. So if, if we were uh, running a race, you know, we get, we get judged by how we end and we, we place, right? First, second, third. And you got rewards based on that. But then after, after these rewards would take place and you, you achieved your prize, you would then and go stand before the ruler on his Bama seat. And the ruler would give you condemnations, where he would give you gifts, commendations, I'm sorry, or you would receive condemnations. You would be punished for how you competed. 
there's a judgment coming. Yeah, we get to go to heaven, saved, sealed by the Holy Spirit. But there's going to be a judgment for what we did here on earth. There's going to be a judgment where we each have to give an account for the things that we've done in Christ. So when conflict comes, are you going to be more concerned about this person? Or are you going to be concerned about the God whom you're going to have to give an account for whether or not you stood firm? Finally, we'll look at verse six very, very quickly. We need to have a mindset on the hope of the gospel. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, that they might live in the spirit the way God does. The gospel message is the only thing powerful enough to change someone from death to life. Ephesians 2 talks about this, that we were dead in our trespasses of sin, but we've been made alive in Jesus Christ. That's what it's talking about. This is, we're preaching, when, when you go and share the gospel with somebody, you're sharing the gospel with someone who is spiritually dead and unable to make a decision for Christ apart from the gospel being presented and the Holy Spirit moving on them. This is the message that, that Jesus came to earth. He lived for 33 years. He was God in the flesh. God the Father confirmed that Jesus is, in fact, God the Son. That he did miracles proving that he's God, that he hung on a cross, that he rose again from the grave. But if you just stop there that, hey, the atonement, you're saved, that's a weak gospel because the gospel's so, so, so much more. Now... We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, enabling us and empowering us to walk in, in obedience and to walk in holiness and to empower us to speak the words when necessary to those around us. He's the one that will give us courage. He's the one that will give us comfort. He's the one that will empower us to walk this life. And it doesn't just end there with it being transformed. We're also delivered. We're delivered to reign forever with God on high as sons and daughters of the king. That's the gospel. We're not just saved from hell. We're saved to heaven. And, you know, we're called to go and preach. We're called to go and tell. But I want to I take a burden off of you just real quick. You can't change anybody. One of the least helpful things we, we say is so-and-so saved so-and-so. You don't save anybody. You just make an introduction and Jesus does all the rest. The Holy Spirit works on their heart. We are called to give introductions. And I want to tell you about a couple introductions or tools that we have for you in making that introduction. The first one is three circles. That's an evangelism training. Maybe you missed the trainings that went on in all of our community groups. Get with Brandon Baker. He will give you the online training. Maybe that's a little much for you still, and you're not ready to verbally share the gospel. We got tracks that you can hand out. They're underneath the Who's Your One sign. We've got Who's Your One where, hey, maybe you're not ready to share the gospel with somebody but you know somebody who's far from God, somebody in need of God, somebody who's not connected to a church, we've got who's your one 
and you go and you say, all right, for this one person or these couple people, I'm praying for them every day until we see God work on their life. But I want to give you one more tool to put in your hand. It'll be up next week, I think. Um, it's these cute little invitations. Um, what they are is they're opportunities. If you would go and put these in people's hands and invite them to the, the live nativity or one of our, our Christmas services, I promise you they're going to hear the gospel. At the live, at the live nativity, we're going, to have, we're going to share the gospel in a unique, different way. It's going to be different than last year. It's going to be compelling. It's, it's going to be um, inspiring. And we're going to have people there ready to share the, the, their faith who have uh, been trained in three circles. They're going to hear the gospel every Sunday that they come to, to church in, during December. And if you would be as brave to take a handful of these things and give them to your neighbors, give them to your friends, and give them to your family, I've got great expectations for what the Lord's going to do. If you will, bow your heads with me.